Hello and welcome to Battlecast, the show where we talk about the greatest battles in history and drink beer. I'm Luke and I'm joined tonight in the bunker with the king of crass, the maestro of innuendo. I'm talking about Chris, ladies and gentlemen. Chris, say something to the people. Thanks, Luke. It's good to be back here in the North Georgia bunker. You know, I spend most of my time in the in my North Atlanta Ivory Tower, so it's good to be back here amongst you common folk. Oh, yeah, right, all right. <laughs> Say, have you ever thought about conquering a small island and building it into a world power that the sun never sets on? Boy, I sure have. No, I never thought about doing that, but I know someone who has. I'm talking about William the Conqueror. All right, tonight we're talking about the Battle of Hastings. Now, the Battle of Hastings decided the fate of Britain and ensured that England would never be the same. And let me tell you, if you're listening to this in English, this battle had an effect on you. All right. Now, the year was 1066, the odds were all on the line, and it all makes for a great show for you, the listener. But before we can do anything, we've got to do the most important things. What's that? Find some coconuts? Or swallows? <laughs> no, crack open a few cold ones, baby. Now, here's the thing about Battlecast. We don't just drink any beer on this show. We drink beer from the battle location. That's why tonight we are drinking Fowler's London Porter. London Porter is brewed by Fowler's Brewing Company right next to the Thames River in London. London Porter takes its name from the porters who carried goods around the streets of London in the 18th century. Now, this prize-winning beer is brewed using pale, crystal, brown, and chocolate malts combined with Fuggles hops, giving a rich, dark, and complex flavor. London Porter boasts wonderful chocolate notes and a smooth, satisfying finish. Oh, yeah, Luke, it's a fantastic beer. It uh, is easy on the palate. It's nice. It's light. It's dark. It's rich. It's, yeah. Uh, it's very flavorful. Super Fan- flavorful. Fantastic brew. Yeah, this beer is really good. Now, I normally hate beers like Guinness, but I'm going to give this a three and a half bullets out of five. This is the Guinness beer for people who don't like Guinness. It has a carbonation that's lacking in Guinness, and if you can find this, I highly recommend it. First off, Guinness is the greatest beer ever brewed. I will throw hands with anyone who challenges that assertion, but this is a fine brew, too. If you like porters, you like stouts, you're going to like this beer. Yeah, this is a great beer, and you know, we want to thank everybody at Fuller's London Porter for making it for us. All right, with that, let's get to the battle. The Normans were unforgiving. Take the 29th of January, 1069. The governor of York and his Norman followers have just been burnt to death by Saxon rebels. Swift was the king's coming, and nowhere did William show more cruelty. He cut down many in his vengeance, and then in his anger he commanded that all crops and herds, food of every kind, should be burned to strip the land of its goodness. As we dragged ourselves into exile, there were many as sank by the wayside and breathed their last. The hunger was very great, so we had no choice. People ate horse flesh, dog meat, even the flesh of men. There were corpses everywhere, swarming with worms, rotting. The smell was terrible, for there was no one to bury them. All were cut off by sword and famine. All the farmland has been left untended these past nine years. Weeds choke the crops. And in all the villages between York and Durham, there are no people. Only robbers 
and wild beasts lurking in the shadows. Now this week we are doing the Battle of Hastings. Now the Battle of Hastings was fought between the Anglo-Saxon forces of Harold Godwinson and the French-Norman Duchy of Normandy on October 14th, 1066. The battle led to the end of Scandinavian England, overthrew the entire English nobility of the time, replaced them with only 200 French-cultured Normans who systematically imposed their language and customs on the English islands. Anyone who speaks English was affected by the outcome of this battle. So, Chris, you want to go ahead and do those battle stats for us? The Battle of Hastings took place just northwest of the town of Hastings in southern England. The home team was composed of 5,000 to maybe, at the high-end estimate, 13,000 Anglo-Saxon warriors, while the visiting Norman team is made up of 7,000 to 12,000 soldiers. Now, the Anglo-Saxon MVP you know, hero unit is the House Carl. These were fiercely loyal elite troops for Harold, who owed him personal allegiance and would go to the mattresses, fight tooth and nail, basically give their lives for Harold Goodwinson. Godwinson. On the other side, William the Bastard has a large <laughs> number of cavalry units at his disposal, basically the beginning of what we would recognize as knights, or at the very least, mounted men-at-arms. These will prove decisive, as Harold has no mounted units at his disposal. Total casualties are unknown, but obviously the Anglo-Saxons took more losses than the Normans, and thousands of men on both sides would have been killed and wounded. The battle's outcome will end Scandinavian England and begin Norman occupation of the kingdom. This battle, along with the looting that came after and the series of battles that preceded it, and the rebellions that came after will devastate southern England, leaving the portion of England, leaving that portion of England substantially poorer than the rest of the kingdom. This is chronicled in the Domesday book that William had produced years later as a survey of his English kingdom. All right, thanks, Chris. And let's go ahead and sit the battle for our fair listeners. Now, the port of Hastings lies in the southeast of England, directly across from Normandy in France. In 1066, the King of England before Harold, King Edward the Confessor, who was a very pious man, so pious, in fact, that many believe he never consummated his marriage with his wife, died. And, of course, they had no children. Now, the English throne was empty, and there was no readily apparent heir. There was... Barely any discussion about who would take the throne. Blood and steel, not words, would decide who would be king. But whoever was going to take the throne needed a few things first. First off, they need an army, which significantly reduces the number of contenders. They also needed money to maintain the army, and they needed a claim to the throne, however tenuous. Thousands of people have to die because King Edward doesn't want to get down? Come on, dude, do your kingly duties. (laughs) Probably what happened was his queen, Edith, was barren, or Eddie was shooting blanks. Hey, man, it happens. Not to me, or anyone I know, but, you know. How many kids do you have? (laughs) (laughs) There there were only really three contenders who meet our requirements. They have an army, they have money, and they have a claim to the throne. Let's talk about them. All right, for the Anglo-Saxons, we have Earl Harold Godwinson. He was the ruler of East Anglia and Hereford. He is fully committed to resisting any Norman influence in his country. He already has armies under his command and is a seasoned battle commander. We also have the king of Norway, Harold Hadrada. Hadrada means hard ruler. Chris, isn't that your wife's nickname? Only when I gotta sneak off to the hills of North Georgia to hang out with you. Ugh. Hadra- Hadrada had traveled across the Byzantine Empire, Russia, and Scandinavia fighting and leading men in arms since he was a young man. He has a fleet, he has money, and he has an army, and a claim to the English throne. Scandinavia? Was he a Viking? With a long ship, Norse guys and everything? It also sounds like he was quite the mercenary, too, for having fought battles over most of Europe and Asia Minor. 
Yeah, he was a Viking with the long ships, the Norse gods, Odin, and all that. Yeah, yeah. All right, finally we have William the Conqueror, also known as William the Bastard. He was Duke of Normandy. Now, Normandy is like a small state in France, but this is France in 1066. The king of France has a vague authority over William, but very little control over the everyday affairs of Normandy. Now, William has money and a small army. He also bribes his fellow nobles with the lands they will conquer in England as a way to strengthen his army. Now, many French nobles take William up on his offer, and William begins to build a fleet for invasion. Don't know what it is about this bastard, but I like the guy. Anyone that was badass enough to somehow get the rest of history to remember you as the Conqueror must have been awesome, or at least have a good PR department. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Now, you'll notice of the three claimants to the English throne, only one is in England at this time. The other two have no power or control on the ground in England. Only Harold has enforcers on the ground. Only Harold is in London at this time. Accordingly, only Harold can bring a decisive influence to bear on local English elites. Just like today... Local rulers interact with and are influenced by, for instance, CIA all across the world. And since no other contenders are on the ground, the English elites crown Harold Godwinson, King of England, on January 5th, 1066. He immediately prepares an army to resist the other claimants, which he knows are going to move in on his territory. The game pieces are moving. The match is set to begin. Many of you who are listening to this podcast had ancestors who would die in this cruel game. Blood was set to flow. I think it's also important to remember that all of these guys did not have a direct hereditary claim to the English throne. They're all acting off promises supposedly made to them by other rulers. Well, they're distantly related, and they you know that's the problem. There was no direct heir, and so that's why we have this problem now, and that's why we have this great podcast tonight. Mm-hmm. Now I want to tell you about the Battle of Stamford Bridge. So Harold Godwinson is in the south of England waiting with his army for the Normans to attack. But the attack never comes. His men are growing restless. Remember, this is an agricultural society and it's the start of fall at this time. There are crops to be gathered in and the men are desperate to get them in. Their livelihoods depend on it. Harold begins to release his men to gather in the crops when the unthinkable happens. Harold Hadrada, the king of Norway, invades the northeast of England and advances on York. The Norwegians easily defeat a small English army, and afterwards the city of York surrenders to Hadrada. Harold Godwinson recalls his army and marches at an incredible pace over 185 miles in less than four days. Now this is military genius. Speed always catches the enemy off guard thinking about the German blitzkrieg tactics in World War II, and I'm thinking about Stonewall Jackson's Shenandoah Valley campaign. You move so fast, you can catch the enemy dispersed when you are concentrated. They're relaxed when you are prepared. They're in the open when you are protected. In fact, I'm reminded of a quote by Stonewall Jackson during the Shenandoah campaign. Quote, I have no sympathy for the gallant man under my command, but I am obliged to sweat them tonight so that I can save their blood tomorrow. End quote. This is especially true in 1066, when you can only travel as fast as your horse will run, or in Harold's case, as fast as he can get his infantry to march. Yeah, that's true. So Harold Godwinson's advance is no different than Stonewall Jackson. He attacked the Norwegians who were completely and utterly unprepared. His speed and the arduous journey saved many Saxon lives. The Norwegian army was split in two separated by a strong river with a very narrow bridge linking the two sides. The Norwegians were unarmed and relaxing in the summer sun. They expected the Anglo-Saxons a week later. The Saxons immediately attacked the unarmored Norwegians on the left side of the river. It was a slaughter. A few Norwegians resisted and slowed down, 
but didn't stop, the Saxon tide across the field of battle. Many Norwegians fled across the narrow bridge, the Saxons in pursuit. It was there that the Saxons met a demigod who withstood their entire army's advance. In the narrows of the bridge, only a few Saxons could advance at a time. They met a bear of a Viking in full battle armor who withstood them with a two-handed battle axe. Each time the Saxons advanced, the Viking cut them down, buying invaluable time for the Norwegians behind him to rally, grab what weapons and armor they could quickly gather and organize for a defense. For approximately half an hour, this one Viking resisted the entire Saxon army alone until one ingenious Saxon floated down the river in a barrel and stabbed the Viking with a spear through the slats of the bridge's boards. Pierced in his growing, the bear man continued to fight but was cut down by a human wave of Anglo-Saxons who cut him to pieces and reformed their battle line across the river. Perhaps one-fourth of the Norwegians' forces had already been killed. The rest, mostly unarmored now, but with shields and weapons, formed a shield wall to resist the Saxon advance. Two hundred years later, the famous Icelandic scholar Snorri Storlson would describe the slaughter in the book King Harold's Saga. So I want to give you a lengthy quote from this famous poet. Quote, King Hadrada ordered his bander, banner Land Waster to be raised. One Norwegian began to chant a battle song. We go forward into battle without armor against blue blades. Helmets glitter, my coat of mail, and all my armor are at the ships. His coat of mail was called Emma. It was so long that it reached his knee, and no weapon could pierce it. Then Hedrata said, that was a very poor verse. I shall make a better one. And the king sang this song. We never kneel in battle. Before the storm of weapons, and crouched behind our shields, so the noble lady told me. She told me once to carry, my head always high in battle, where swords seek to shatter the skulls of doomed warriors. Then the poet, Theodolf, said, Though Harold himself should fall, never shall I abandon the king's young heirs, God's will be done. The sun never shone on more promising princess, the two young eaglets would soon avenge their father. Now the Saxon army attacked. The Norwegians violently resisted with a shield wall, but without their armor, the Saxons began to slowly make holes in the Norwegian defense line. Finally, a large hole broke in the Norwegian lines, and the Saxons flooded through it behind the Norwegian line. It was then that the slaughter began. The Saxons now began to encircle the Norwegians, moving behind them and slaughtering them from behind as the Norwegians still contended with the Saxons in front of them. The end was near. Snorri Sturluson again takes up the story at this point. Quote, When King Harald Sigurdsson saw this, he led a charge into the thickest of the fighting. The battle became very fierce and great numbers were killed on both sides. King Harald Sigurdsson now fell into such a fury of battle that he rushed forward ahead of his troops, fighting two-handed. Neither helmets nor coats of mail could withstand him, and everyone in his path gave way before him. It looked then as if the English were on the point of being routed. In the words of Arnor, the Earl's poet, Norway's king had nothing to shield his breast in battle, and yet his war seasoned, heart never wavered. Norway's warriors watching, their blood a-dripping swords of their courageous leader, cutting down his enemies. But now King Harald Sigurdsson, Hadrada, was stuck in the throat by an arrow, and this was his death wound. He fell, and with him fell all those who had advanced with him, except for those who retreated with the royal standard. 
the poet Theodolf said about this time. Disaster has befallen us. I say the army has been duped. There was no cause for Harold to bring his forces westward. Mighty Harold has fallen, and we are all imperiled. Norway's renowned leader has lost his life in England. It was an evil moment when Norway's king lay fallen. Gold-inlaid weapons brought death to Norway's leader. All King Harold's warriors preferred to die beside him, sharing their brave king's fate rather than beg for mercy. The battle of Stamford Bridge was over. King Hadrada was dead. The Norwegian claim to the English throne died with him. It was then, literally at the end of battle, that Harold Godwinson received terrible news. The Normans were landing on the English shore near a small port called Hastings. William the Bastard had come. Now Harold Godwinson pulls a Stonewall Jackson and races back the 185 miles down the coast in record time. It took him two weeks to reach the battlefield because he was raising and organizing additional forces as he traveled. Meanwhile, Duke William was bringing over his troops and horses from Normandy, setting up his supply chain and raiding the surrounding countryside for supplies. Because remember, in William's point of view, all of the Anglo-Saxons are withstanding his legitimate claim to the throne. He believes they are all rebels and treats them with the harshness that is often meted out to rebels. Now I want to talk about the elite soldiers in both armies. The hardcore elite of Harold's army was the House Carls. House Carls were military retainers. The name House Carls literally means household servant. They were retained by leading noblemen and acted like a garrison for the nobleman's area of responsibility. Their entire function in this society is to act as warriors. Think of them as English samurai. Historian Jim Bradbury describes the House Carls. Quote, They lived with their lord. They accompanied him in war and peace. They defended and protected him. Their loyalty was demanded, often with an oath to guarantee it. His protection and maintenance of them was expected. In battle, such men would fight as an integrated group, and group loyalty and comradeship were also a feature of such troops. The English warriors were expected to stand side by side, comrades together around their leader, to hack or thrust and trade blows. The poet Carmen wrote, The English scorn the solace of horses, and trusting in their strength, they stand fast on foot. End quote. The Scandinavian English. <laughs> Not the Norman English who were coming. That's right, yeah, this is the Scandinavians. Now, on the French side, the Norman side, the elite soldiers were the cavalry. Now, the basic layout for your cavalry was an armored knight wielding a lance or spear on a specially bred war horse. The horses were especially bred stallions who were trained and went through a breeding program only for warfare. Jim Bradbury describes the horses, quote, The cavalry horse was a special animal, more valuable than any other horse. It had to be specially bred and specially trained. It was large without being too clumsy. The war horse's weight, speed, and impact would have great effect. Before long, the Frankish cavalry would be proving its worth against different style armies in the East during the Crusades, when those seeing it in action for the first time were greatly impressed. Anna Camina thought that the first charge of Frankish, Frankish cavalry was irresistible. The Frank could drill his way through the walls of ba Babylon, the poet said. End quote. The Normans valued their horses so much they transported thousands of them across the channel to England. It was a little over three weeks since the Battle of Stamford Bridge when the Saxons would face the Normans for the decision of the English culture, the English language, and the English identity. The Battle of Hastings was about to begin.
On October 14, 1066, the Saxons arrived on the battlefield first. Now, the battlefield is not in the town of Hastings or even really that near it. The battle is about, battlefield's about seven miles north of the port of Hastings, and you'll never guess the name of the town where the battle took place. Not so Hastings? A battle to be named later? The Battle of the Bastervilles? No. The name of the town where the Battle of Hastings was fought is called Battle. That's the name of it, Battle. Now, how appropriate is that, right? Well, it's succinct. I guess they were into that whole brevity thing. Yeah, all right. Well, listen. Now, Harold is no fool. He's been leading troops into battle for his entire adult life. He immediately deploys his troops in a blocking position on the main highway leading from Hastings, the seaport where the Normans are based, to London, William's main military objective. The only way William will make it to London is through William's war axes. And not only that, but Harold shows his tactical skills by deploying on a hill called Siniac Hill. That dominates not only the highway, but the entire countryside. Harold takes the high ground. Now, Harold leaves what few horses his men have in the rear and sets his men up in a shield wall. <clears throat> he has no archers. He has no cavalry. If the shield wall held, Harold would be king. If the shield wall fell, so would Harold. Historian Jen, Jim Bradbury describes the shield wall. Quote, the shield wall, or war wall, was a poetic description of this put into practice. A solid line of men standing shoulder to shoulder to face the enemy. At Sherston... In 1016, the best men were placed in the front line, which was probably normal practice. At Hastings, the English were described as all on foot and in close ranks. The ideal was to advance towards victory or to die where you stood. End quote. So Harold's troops are deployed in one line at the top of a steep hill. If you saw the battle line from the sky, it would look like a smile or a rainbow. The Saxons' flanks are protected by woods, marshlands, and a stream. It's a very strong position, and the Saxons await the, Nor await the Norman advance. Their bodies are all that stand in William's way from achieving the crown in England. They wait to embrace William in death. Soon, William will come. Now the Normans deploy in a much more sophisticated fashion than Harold's army. They wrap their forces in a semicircular pattern at the base of the hill that mirror, mirrors Harold's forces, but they are significantly more nimble. Instead of one battle line, William sets his army into three relatively equal groupings, which he calls battles, but we're going to call battle groups. Each group had a similar layout and composition, but they can act independently of one another. Now, the Saxon line does not have this independence built into it. It is essentially a wall of men that William is going to prod, circle, shoot, attack, and test the entire day. Each Norman battle group had three lines. In the front line were the archers. These were supposed to soften up the Saxons with volleys of arrows. Behind the archers were the infantry, and behind the infantry, held in reserve, were the war cavalry. I think it's very difficult to imagine how communication on battlefields used to be with very unprofessional forces that have limited training with no with very little command structure other than the commander and all the other soldiers. That's the command structure. For William's forces to be grouped into independent commands, the battle groups, give them a huge tactical advantage, especially against a very stationary force that is outnumbered. Very much sounds like the way Game of Thrones planned out the Battle of Bastards this past season. If everyone needs a solid visual on the press of the battle during this period. Yeah, that's a great, that's a good insight. So here we go. The battle began at 9 a.m. on October 14th, 1066. Now this battle is going to last all day long. These men will fight from sun up until sundown. The Normans started the battle with archers. The first thing they did was yell at the Saxons the battle cry, God aid us! 
And the Saxons yelled back the laconic response, Out! As in, get out of our lands, Normans. The Normans began to fire arrow after arrow in the Anglo-Saxon ranks. The arrows had no effect at all. Why? Because the Saxons are on top of a large hill that dominates the surrounding area. They have the high ground. The Normans' arrows are firing into the ground and the Saxon shields. The Saxons don't even have to hold their shields up to block the arrows. It was clear from the beginning of the battle that the Norman archers would not decide the struggle. The Normans began to change their tactics. William sent his infantry into the battle. As they marched up the steep slope of the hill, they began to come under effective missile fire. The Saxons were hurling stones, spears, and axes at the Normans. Still, the Normans came on. The Normans attacked the shield wall and made little headway. Again and again, they attempted to pierce Harold's wall, but the wall stood like it was an extension of the hill itself. Exasperated, William threw in his cavalry. They charged with their herd of death up the hill. Surely the stallions, the experienced war horses, would break the back of the shield wall. The horses, galloping at full speed up the hill, slammed into the spears and shields of the Saxons. Still the Saxons held. The Norman cavalry had utterly failed. A Norman eyewitness to the battle describes what the first attack was like. Quote, the noise of the shouting from the Normans on one side and the barbarians on the other could barely be heard over the clash of weapons and the groans of the dying. End quote. Unable to stand, and believing a rumor that William had died, the Normans began to retreat from the top of the hill, falling back into disorder. That's when the Saxons left the safety of the shield wall and chased the fleeing Normans, hacking them with their battle axes, an irresistible surge of iron flowing down the hill. A contemporary eyewitness describes the disasters, the disaster that William's army was facing. Quote, Almost the whole line of Duke William fell back. Even the armies of glorious Rome, which won so many victories on land and sea, sometimes they had to turn in flight. Those supported by loyal troops, when they learned that their leader was killed or thought that he was dead, the Normans believed that their duke had fallen. End quote. That's usually when most of the men actually die, is fleeing the battle. That's usually when they're en route, after they completely leave, you know, no coherency in their battle lines anymore. They all just start running and fleeing, and the other side still has some kind of coherency in their battle tactics and just chasing them down from behind and killing them. That's exactly right, and that's why facing the enemy is the smartest battle move, even if you're scared out of your wits. So at the bottom of the hill, William rode into his fleeing man. He ripped off his armor so his men could see his face, and he screams, I'm alive! I'm alive! Rally to me! I'm alive! An account of the battle written afterwards has William screaming these lines, Look at me! He shouted, I am still alive, and with God's help I shall win. What madness makes you turn in flight? What retreat do you have if you flee? If you keep going, not a single one of you will escape. End quote. When the Normans see that William is still leading the battle, they turn to defend their king. William leads a counterattack against the Saxons who are now scattered and dispersed over the hill. The Norman cavalry ride them down like grass, as if they were insects smashed by children playing in a schoolyard. It is almost a game for the Normans. I am reminded of Shakespeare, quote, As wanton flies are we to the gods, they kill us just for sport, end quote. I mean, they could have been could it have been possible that the Normans were retreating, feigning a retreat, only to turn around and attack? No, no. From all the accounts, and we have a lot of accounts of this battle, they actually did retreat because they thought William had died. Remember, they only have personal loyalty to the commander. Yeah. If he's dead, they don't have a claim to the throne. <laughs> yeah, so why should you fight? You're not going to get anything. Yeah, it's run illegitimate. Away, run away. 
<laughs> so yeah, it was it was real. But you know, you brought an important thing up because in the future of this battle, they are going to feign retreats. But we'll talk about that in the middle in a minute. Now it was Harold's turn to rally his men after the French attacked again. At the top of the hill, and using the disciplined house carls as a hardcore anchor, Harold reforms the shield wall at the top of the hill. He probably actually hoped that the Norman cavalry would continue the advance up the hill, straight into his waiting spears, but William isn't that stupid. The cavalry halted before the shield wall. Jim Bradbury describes the Norman charge up the hill, quote, in the fighting which followed, the Duke had three horses killed under him, each time finding a new mount and continuing to fight. Portier says that each time William killed the man who had brought down his horse and showed his own physical strength, fighting with his sword and on occasion with his shield. An English wrestler using an axe struck the Duke on the head and beat in his helmet, though without doing much injury, end quote. The Normans again retreated to the bottom of the hill. And then the two sides paused in the afternoon. With thousands dead and dying between them, the armies were reformed back into the original positions of the morning. Harold with a wall of men taunting the Normans to attack, and William at the bottom of the hill, desperate to break the seemingly impenetrable wall. Alright guys, we're in the middle of the battle. It's time for the halftime report. Chris, take it away. So at halftime, we have Harold, the current English king, who has smashed one potential claimant to the throne and engaged the other outside of Hastings. William the Bastard has landed his forces and met Harold on the battlefield. Harold had a near route, but William rallied his forces and was able to push Harold back up the hill, where the Anglo-Saxons have reformed their shield wall and are awaiting the next push by the Normans. Luke, who do you think is the better general at this point? Harold or William? I think I'm going to have to go with William. And the reason is, William obviously has a better command of his army. He's got those three different groupings. He's got three different type of soldiers. Harold's keeping it simple. Now, there's a lot to be said for keeping it simple. There really is. Keep it simple, stupid. But at the same time, you got William, and he's able to maneuver those forces around and use them to pinpoint weaknesses in Harold's line. Still... Still, Harold, we've seen his movements to the north of England and back in record time, catching both Harold Hadrada and William the Bastard, William the Conqueror, off guard. This guy moves fast. He's got the fundamentals down. He knows what he's doing. And, hey, he hasn't lost the battle today either. So he's, he's, doing, he's doing strong. He's a strong contender. I, I have to say Harold's a great, seems to be from the sources, a great general. But I'm going to still say that William's just a little bit better. You know, in this battle, it seems to me, Chris, like we have refined versus rugged. Almost like a really cool, good, you know, down-home beer versus more of an elegant beer. You know what I mean? What do you think? Well, I really like Harold as a general. I mean, he doesn't have the flexibility, the forces that William has. Um, but he's been able to apply what he has in the maximum for maximum damage. He's positioned his forces at the top of the hill. He's got defenses on either side where he can't be flanked. And, you know, he's, he's forced William to come to him. He's chosen the ground. William has to fight on his ground where he chose to chose to engage back. That is actually a great point, Chris. So I didn't bring in. Harold used the ground. He used the marshes to protect his flanks, the creek to protect his flanks. He's dominating the high ground, which we all know is absolutely essential for any commander. I, you know, it's hard for me to say, and I think the reason it's hard for me to say is because these guys went back and forth all day because they were both excellent generals, albeit very different generals. Chris, you got anything else you want to add during the halftime report? 
No, that's about it. I like like both these guys up until this point. I think Williams got a little more passion, so I feel like he's going to win. All right. Well, uh, guys, let's transition to the next phase of this battle. Now, the second phase of the Battle of Hastings starts with William demonstrating his tactical intelligence. Realizing that he cannot break Harold's shield wall, William decides to fake retreats in order to lead Harold's men into breaking their shield wall and attacking the supposedly retreating Normans. William then plans to counterattack Harold's exposed troops, the same tactic that had worked for the Normans in the first phase of the battle. But Harold is no fool. He knows Enormous can't break his shield wall, and he ensures his men never take the bait that William presents to him. Twice the French attack, and twice they pretend to retreat. But Harold's men, exercising discipline, showing his generalship, remain in their shield wall. William's tactics are failing, and that's when God intervened. During the second phase of the battle, the Normans are still using their archers to attack Saxons. Now, these archers are ineffective, but I mean that in a broad sense. Of course, some arrows are still inflicting wounds and hurting a few of the Saxons, but largely, they're basically ineffective. Now, the Normans lead a third charge up the hill to attack the Saxons, and the attack is easily repelled by the shield wall. That's when what atheists call luck, or what Christians call God, intervened in the battle. A random arrow, and these arrows weren't fired with any deliberate aim. They were fired in a mass. Hit Harold Godwinson square in the eye, penetrating into his brain, and killing him almost instantly. I was reading about this. Are you sure it hit him in the eye? Because I know it's it's depicted on the Bayou. Tra- is it Bay- Bayou? Bay- Bayou tapestry. Bayou I tapestry. But I was reading where some people had speculated that maybe he doesn't get hit in the eye, or maybe that wound comes later, and that he actually gets rode down or he gets you know hacked to pieces. There's two stories. One is he's hit in the eye and he dies. But there's another one that he's hit somewhere on the face and then he is attacked by uh, cavalry troops and ridden down. But since the Bayeux Tapestry was made by contemporaries, it had the input of a commander of the Norman side that day. He he personally oversaw the development Mm. of the tapestry. Most people believe that have looked into it, believe that he was shot in the eye and died from that. Now, his body may have been trampled on later. So that could be the source of that other story. Now, I want you guys to remember, all these men are fighting for Harold personally only. Without him, they don't have a claim to the throne. They don't have a conception of a country like we do today. They owed their loyalty personally to Harold. At this point in the battle, realizing Harold is dead, many Saxons began to retreat. However, Harold's loyal house cars remain next to his body and they fight to the last man for the king who was already dead. What loyalty? They literally have no claim to the throne, their king is dead, and they still remember their oath to Harold Godwinson. These people believed in oaths and vows in a way that's hard for us to comprehend in our age of generalized divorce. What men? If only we had half of such loyalty in my life. After the last of the house carls are killed... The Norman cavalry ranges the countryside, killing the fleeing Saxons. A historian describes the end of the battle this way, quote, Many died where they fell in the deep cover of the woods. Others dropped, exhausted along the way. There was a Norman pursuit. Some were cut down from behind, and some were trampled under the horse's hooves, end quote. I want you to think about dying. You're wounded, and you're trampled to death by a horse. Chris, do you know how much horses weigh? Is it a large horse? War horse, baby. Stallion. Uh, I don't know. The, the number that comes to my mind is 1,600 pounds. 
of pure muscle raging down on your body. Is that with equipment to, too? Uh, no, that's not with equipment, but I'm not sure. I'm just doing a ballpark, but just think about that. And if you're sitting in your car or at your desk, be thankful it wasn't you on that field that day. A few Saxons made a last stand at a ditch called Malfoss. Literally, it means evil ditch, but they are massacred. William the Conqueror makes his camp on the battlefield as a symbol of his domination over the Saxons. The fate of England was sealed at the Battle of Hastings. The fate of our language was sealed at the Battle of Hastings. William the Conqueror followed up his victory by marching on London. When the local nobles still refused to recognize William as king, his army devastated the countryside. I can only compare this to Sherman's march to the sea, but perhaps with a little more rape. Due to the extreme brutality William brought on the people of England, the English nobility had no choice but to submit and have William crowned king. On December 25th, 1066, William was crowned king at Westminster Abbey. One of his first acts was to throw the dead body of Harold into the sea. Now the Normans set about absorbing their conquest. One historian described it as, quote, The swiftest, most brutal, and most far-reaching transformation in English history, end quote. He set about solidifying his rule in a number of ways. First, he had a law promulgated that if any Norman were killed, regardless of the reason, the local Anglo-Saxon population would pay a massive fine called Mordrum. Mordrum. That sounds like a girl you would date, Chris. <laughs> oh, it's just hot. <laughs> if she looked good enough, he'd date her. <laughs> Okay, there was a number of small regional rebellions against the Normans that William promptly smashed. However, William showed his ability to use diplomacy rather than simple brutality. When the city of Exeter revolted against William and supported Harold Godwinson's invasion to reestablish the Godwinsons' claim to the throne, William made many favorable concessions to the city of Exeter in order to divorce them from Harold's sons. He then crushed Harold Godwinson's children in a battle in 1068. Take that, kids. <laughs> All of this culminated in the Harrying of the North. When William devastated the northern countryside of England during the winter of 1069, it started when the North rebelled and asked for Danish assistance in overthrowing William. Denmark sent an army to join with the rebels. However, when William advanced to attack the rebel army, they fled north into Scotland. William then bribed the Danish army to leave, and when the northern rebels refused to meet him in open combat, he unleashed hell on northern England. A near contemporary describes the destruction that Harold wrought in the north. Quote, the king stopped at nothing to hunt his enemies. He cut down many people. He destroyed homes and lands. Nowhere else had he shown such cruelty. This made a real change. To his shame, William made no effort to control his fury, punishing the innocent with the guilty. He ordered that crops and herds, tools and food be burned to ashes. More than 100,000 people perished of starvation. I have often praised William in this book, but I can say nothing good about this brutal slaughter. God will punish him, end quote. Yeah, you know, he's just trying to control the countryside, so you, some people got to die. You know, these are, for a lot of us in America and people listening in Canada, Australia, these are our ancestors. These are these are our great 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 grandparents that dealt with this. Yeah, not all of our ancestors, because some of them are dead. Yeah, that's true. Another chronicler, Simon of Durham, wrote about the harry, harrying of the North. Quote, As a result of the harrying, there was no village inhabited between York and Durham. End quote. He literally wiped out every population group from that entire region. Modern historian 
Jim Bradbury describes William's destruction, quote, The conqueror sought out any rebel and any who got in his way. His troops spread over a great distance, combing woodland and remote areas, leaving no hiding place unsearched. He wanted the whole region north of the Humber to be deprived of food. Houses and crops were destroyed. Any living creature that crossed the path of William's troops was slaughtered, till a great band of ashes and waste spread over Yorkshire. End quote. Researchers in the modern era have called the harrying of the North an act of genocide. The real number of Anglo-Saxon dead is unknown, but some authors estimate more than 5% of the English population was killed in the harrying of the North. Many of you listeners today are descended from the people who lived through this. Be thankful for peace. Be thankful for full bellies and air conditioners. It was hard bought by past generations. Now, After the harrying of the North, there were few who had the resources or will to challenge William's claim to the throne. Our language today has William's imprint on it. It was born from the smashing of Anglo-Saxon resistance. It was born from the burnt fields surrounding York. It was born from starvation. This language of ours was built with steel and blood, conquest and brutality. We speak it, we think it, we love in it. We hear our wives and our daughters whisper it in our ears. And it all began at the Battle of Hastings. All right, guys, and that's it for us here in the North Georgia Bunker. Hope you enjoyed this Battle of Hastings episode. I had a lot of fun doing it, and I appreciate each and every one of you. I want you to know that. I hope that you guys will check out our website, and I just hope that you'll keep listening to the show. Help us grow. Tell a friend. It really helps us. Chris, you want to say something to the people? Yes, I do. And that website is thebattlecast.com. If you could also leave us a review on iTunes, that would really help us out. Five stars. Oh, yeah. Five stars only. And this is Luke from the North Georgia Bunker wishing you good weather and good times with good people. Guys, thank you so much for listening. I hope you have a great night and be with people you love. Bye.